Matt, I'm so happy to be with you this morning, and uh, we want you to take your Bibles as the first thing that we do every week is open our Bibles up, and we'll get to the Scriptures in just a moment. If you have your Bibles this morning, and turn to Luke chapter 10, uh, which is the companion passage to Matthew 22, the great commandment that we looked at last week. We'll look again uh, this week at that great commandment, and then the immediate parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan right after that. The title of the message today is, As You Go Out of Your Way. This is summer, and uh, how many of you are taking summer vacation uh, or, or have been on a summer vacation or about to go on a summer vacation? Would you raise your hand if you're doing that? And that's, uh, that's awesome that you do that. And I want to tell you something. Summers for us over the years with six kids has always been an adventure to take vacations. We always had the biggest kind of van or the biggest kind of suburban. And I remember one year we went to Red River, New Mexico in the summer. We used to go skiing in the winter. And I couldn't think of why we would go in the summer, but we went one summer on vacation with all of our kids. And we happened to be in a suburban. It happened to be a four-wheel drive suburban. And we heard of a mountain nearby. So after doing everything we could in the area, the township of Red River, we decided to take this suburban up on a Jeep trail to the top of a mountain. So we were going way out of our way, hoping to have you know, a great day there. We packed a picnic lunch, and we got on this Jeep trail, and somewhere along the way, the sign said, Jeeps only. And I felt like that meant four-wheel drives only, right? Because Jeep is a generic term, as well as a specific brand. And uh, so we were going up switchbacks and all kinds of things. All six kids in the back were going crazy. They were loving it. My wife, seated on the next, uh, to the right of me, was looking over the cliff. So she was on the sad side, the scary side going up. I remember that. And so we were about to lose her through a case of nervous breakdown, right? But we got to the back of the, the top of the hill after going through all these switchbacks and all these cuts and hills and everything else. Four-wheel drive all the way. And there was this huge tree that had fallen and I remember our kids could actually get inside the hollowed out portion of that tree. We had a phenomenal picnic and uh, we had a great time. In fact, the, the high point of my vacation was when we went way out of our way to go up that mountain peak and, and have that picnic that day. Probably the best thing that happened besides that was after we got through with our picnic lunch, about 25 Jeeps came up the trail. They were coming up like one after the other, and they saw our family up there having a family picnic. And these guys were, you know, they were really Jeep diehards, right? Only a Jeep can make it up, they say. Only a Jeep can really do that. And they saw this family suburban four-wheel drive up there, and they said, how did you get up there? And I said, well, that, that Chevy made it up. And uh, if that Chevy made it up, I guess your Jeep can make it up too. They didn't like that at all. Sometimes you have to go out of the way to get the most memorable thing done. And that's really what this parable that we'll look at today is all about. The good Samaritan that goes out of his way in the story that Jesus tells to do the most profound thing that he could do. I want you to stand with me for a moment as we read Luke chapter 10, as we look at the parable of the good Samaritan, which immediately follows the conversation of the great commandment. And if you remember the great commandment, we looked last week at Matthew chapter 22. You see it again in Luke chapter 10. Jesus said the greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like unto it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew's depiction of Jesus' words, it stands alone. But in Luke's account, there's a question. And that question is found in verse 29 where the man says to Jesus, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And that's a good question. That's a logical question to be asked after Jesus says, the second 
of the commandments is to love your, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And upon these, all the law and all the prophets fall. Everything in the Bible points to these two great commandments. So it's a good question. Who is my neighbor? Verse 30, Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among the robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, the priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Notice the movement. Verse 33, but a Samaritan who was on the journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds. He went out of his way to do this, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. And then Jesus asked a second question, this a more penetrating question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy towards him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Well, that's a powerful statement. A powerful story. Three characters in the story. Two missed it, one didn't. And Jesus said, go do what that one did. Father, in Jesus' name, today I pray that you'll bring home the seriousness and the power of this parable. And bring home to us, really, what we're all about. As followers of Jesus. Those who wish to do what he asks us to do. And Father, I pray that we'll see ourselves in this position, in this place, throughout the story, we ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Please be seated if you would. We've laid some groundwork over the last few weeks for what we're walking through with our real series. We're, we're a group of people, and we say this, we're real people who have real hope in Christ, and we found real life in Christ. And it begs the question, what is real life in Christ? What is real life in Christ? What does it look like when we find that? What does it look like when we move towards that abundant life that Jesus promises us? We know we're real people. We're just like everyone else on earth. We're authentic. We're just ordinary individuals that God's blessed with his grace and his peace and his promises. And we find our hope, the real hope, of course, in Jesus Christ. He's the hope of the world. He's the light of the world. He's the only one we find hope for change or hope for the future is all in Jesus. But what is this real life that we talk about, all about? And as we ask that question, we come back to our strategy statement that we use repeatedly, and here's what it is. That we will relate well to God and man, engage the lost, Adopt new believers and multiply leaders. We will relate well to God and man. That's all about the vertical relationship and the horizontal relationship. We relate well to others because we first find our satisfaction and our fulfillment in Christ. So vertical influences horizontal. And then we'll engage the lost, those that are far from God. Adopt new believers and multiply Leaders. In fact, when you look at our logo, we have four points in the cross of our logo, and we put these four words over them. By the way, these four words are an acrostic for real, R-E-A-L. So we relate well to God, that's vertical, and we are able to connect well with those in a horizontal relationship as well. The second point of the cross is to engage, to engage those that are far from God and draw them near by the love of Christ expressed through us 
in what we do and how we minister to them, but go out of our way to engage them. And then once they come to faith in Christ, we adopt them, not just disciple. Disciple is a great word, but today I fear we've taken the word disciple, and to us it means yet another course or another study instead of really moving people towards maturity where they can also bring other people to Christ and mature, mature them. So adopt is our word. And then we move from there to lead, to multiply leaders, to bring people all the way from salvation to adoption to spiritual maturity, and then to multiply them as leaders where this can continually take place. Relate, engage, adopt, lead. Relate, engage, adopt, lead. It flows well. It's mellifluous, some would say. It goes well. It's smooth. We relate, we engage, we adopt, we multiply. And that could change things for us. It can change things for us to know, here's the why behind why I worship God. Here's what I believe God wants to do with my life. Here's what I believe God wants to do with our church. He wants us to be in an incredible relationship with him first. Let me just tell you something today. Your worship is about relating well to God. And when you come and worship him and abandon yourself to his power and his goodness and grace, you experience his presence in your life and you're relating well with him. And when you reach out to others, you relate well with them as well. So, first of all, we relate well with God and with others. That's what the great commandment tells us to do. Last week, we looked at what it meant to branch out and love others, and we said this statement. We made this statement that said we are to love others compassionately, selflessly, and inclusively. So, that's a reminder. That's how we are to love others. That's the parable of the Good Samaritan for us. And by the way, as we talk about this idea of loving God well and then loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, I think it's important for us to say... Sometimes we read into that, that great commandment that we are to learn to love ourselves. Now, there are whole articles and whole systems built on this idea, on the idea of healthy self-love, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. As a matter of fact, our problem is sometimes we love ourselves too much. And the Bible continually enforces or reinforces to us that we must die to self in order to live to God and live to others. So this, this parable and this good Samaritan and the great commandment teaching of Jesus, it's not about learning to love ourselves more. It's about learning to value others the way we all value ourselves and to learn to value others as we value also our relationship with God. So relate well to God and others. That's what we talked about last week. But what about this week? What does it mean to look at this good Samaritan parable? And really the heart of this is to engage others with the gospel. The Good Samaritan is about engaging people. It's about engaging people we would not ordinarily engage. It's about reaching out to people we would not ordinarily reach out to. It means going out of our way. We're fond of saying that the great commission is to, as you go, make disciples. And so make disciples in where you go in life. But this goes further. It says, as you go out of your way sometimes, you make disciples by reaching out and engaging people with the good news and the love of Jesus Christ. Now, when I think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, I think, you know what, I would, I would reach out and help people quite readily who are in my support system. When we think about engaging others with the gospel, we think about our family, we think about our friends, we think about those that we work with. 
We usually think about those in our church when we think about close friendships and we think about people that we would sacrifice for. We think about homogenous groups, people that are just like us. It's easy to love people that are just like us, isn't it? We don't have really anything to hold us apart. If we, if we love people just like us and if we love people that can love us back, there's no challenge. There's no supernaturality in that. We ought to love our family well. We ought to love our family sacrificially. We ought to love our church body and our family well. I love my family. I love my church. I love the brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. I love to worship together as we worship God. I love to serve together. That love comes because of the love of Christ in our life. But the Good Samaritan is talking about going further than that, going beyond that. Yes, we love each other, but we also go further than that. And today, as we talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan, I just want to keep in mind in front of you who this really is about. I've got a bag here with some things in it, and these things are just going to represent the guy on the side of the road. The Bible says he was stripped and he was beaten and left for half dead. So I've got a shirt that I'm going to throw out there. Then I've got a pair of pants I'm going to throw out there. Because I'm going to create for you kind of a, kind of a pile, kind of a heap of clothes that represent somebody that's been beaten and stripped and left for half dead. And I want you to keep your eye on that for just a few moments because this parable at its heart is about movement. Are we gonna move towards those kinds of people or away from those kinds of people? If we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our minds, and if we care about the second commandment, which is like unto it, that we love our neighbor as ourselves, what are we going to do with that? Something that is unattractive, not capable of returning our love. First of all, I want to go back to that first question that we saw as we started reading the text, and that's in verse 29. And that question is an important one. Who is my neighbor? The word neighbor in the Greek is an easy word to decipher. It means any fellow man, especially the one nearby. It has the idea of nearness, nearness. Those that are around, those that we see, those that we happen upon. Sometimes we translate neighbor to be those on the other side of the world. and There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not specifically what Jesus was talking about here. And in his parable, he was speaking about three individuals that were moving in one direction. And what they did with the one that was hurting is what this parable is all about. We ought to love those around us. But I wonder what this guy that asked the question was expecting. Am I supposed to love those that are like me or those others, those other hurting people? Let me just say this before we get to the end of the understanding of what we're saying today. Let me just say that the New Testament church took this teaching of Jesus and went crazy with it. And by that, I mean they were loving people that were outcast in society. In fact, their testimony from agnostics and atheists and those in that day and time that did not sympathize with the teaching of Jesus was that they were held in great favor and great esteem by even those that were far, far from God. For, as a matter of fact, Lucian of Samosta made this statement. He was one of the greatest opponents of the early church. And he had to concede this in his own words. Though I hate what those Christians stand for, I must concede that they not only take care of their own outcasts, they take care of their widows, their orphans, and those that are left alone, but ours as well. 
I must concede about them. They care about all people. That bothers me. An opponent of Christ said that. So that's the first question. Who's my neighbor? What are we going to do with our neighbors like these in the parable? But the second question is a bigger question. It's the question that Jesus asked. All the way at the end of this parable, verse 36, Jesus asked the question himself, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in the robber's hands? Was it the Levite? Was it the priest? Was it the Samaritan? Jesus wasn't talking about that man being the neighbor. He was talking about whoever is in this story, you or me, are we going to be the neighbor? Jesus wasn't talking about the victim. He was talking about the one who would help the victim. He would minister to the victim. He would reach out to the victim. He would help the victim. So consider verses 31 through 33 for just a moment. The Bible says, And by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, he was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Here's a road. Here's a victim. The priest, in this parable of movement, sees him on the road, intending to get to the other side, and what does he do? He passes by him because he wants to be on his way. And he leaves the victim robbed, beaten, left half dead, and keeps on going. The priest and the Levite do exactly the same thing in this parable. They're on the roadway, they see the victim, and they walk right by on the other side because they don't want to go out of their way in order to minister to someone and help someone. Then the Samaritan, Jesus says in the story. By the way, the Samaritan was considered by Jews to be a half-breed, an outcast himself. The Samaritan was the least likely person to show compassion, the least likely person to show the qualities of God as Jesus is telling this story. I can only imagine what these Pharisees and these Sadducees were thinking as Jesus said, and then there was a Samaritan. In this parable of movement, everybody else moves away because they want to get on their way and do whatever it is they must do. But in this parable of movement, the Samaritan sees the one that's been beaten and has compassion. And he stops and he goes out of his way in order to do what's necessary. He takes of his own money. He puts the victim on his own beast and takes him to an inn where he takes care of him and says, I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'll pay you whatever you need to take care of this person. A parable of movement. Imagine that. Do you know that you and I move through life every day and maybe we don't see those places and those people that we are called to go out of our way and touch and minister to and reach? I know what's going to happen. I know that someone's going to say, because we all say, we want to be like this Good Samaritan. So when you look at the Good Samaritan, realize he's intentional, he's involved, he's immersed, he's engaged. But it's what's in his heart that makes the difference. The great commandment tells us that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Then love your neighbor as yourself as a result of that loving God with all your heart. Even a Samaritan can do that. Even a Samaritan can do that if he has a love for God. Is impacted by the love of God.
And here's what we say. Well, pastor, or well, Jesus, if I saw a stripped, beaten, half-dead person on my street, I'd stop and help. Well, I would hope you would. But what about the one that's just as broken but does not look as stripped, as beaten, as half-dead? I don't know about you, but the people on my street are not, they don't look like that. They might look like that at some point, but at some other point, they clean themselves up, they put their clothes back on, they go up, get up to face another day, but they may be empty and broken and lonely. And they may be without an understanding of Jesus. The people on my street don't look like that. I'm sure the people on your street don't look like that either. But let me ask you, are they hurting? Are they broken? Are they lost? Are they lonely? Are they depressed? Are they searching? Are they empty? And would you know? Have you asked? Have you taken the time to go out of your way to make disciples for Christ by engaging the lost? Uh, If we've learned anything, we've learned that sometimes the person who's hurting the most looks like the person that has it all together because they can do that well. Over the last two weeks, we've seen some some unusual suicidal activity. Put a couple of faces on the screen of a couple of individuals that you probably know about. Anthony Bourdain, by all standards, by most standards, a very successful television producer and actor who's gone throughout the world, tasting the food of the world and interacting with the people of the world. Took his own life on the outside, looking very together. On the outside, looking very successful on the outside, helping people accept other people in the world. He took his own life because of emptiness, loneliness, whatever it might have been. Kate Spade, that's the other picture up there. Famous handbag designer, multimillionaire, mother of a young daughter, took her own life. What is it? That life is so empty and life is so lonely and life is hurting so bad. Even though on the outside we can have that great exterior on the inside, we may be absolutely without hope. And you won't know it if you don't go out of your way to know the people around you. So go out of your way on the way to make disciples. Go out of your way on the way to helping others come to Jesus and engaging people that God has put near you and you move near them. Don't go away from those in need, go to those in need, even though it may be out of the way of your everyday life, it may be out of the way of your agenda, go to them and watch what God does. Love your neighbor as yourself and then we have this wild parable. You know, when I look at the life of Jesus and I I love to see the personal conversations that he has, I love to see Jesus teach like the messages on the Sermon on the Mount. Mount of Transfiguration, times and high points where people are coming to Jesus by the hundreds and thousands and they love what flows out of his mouth. But I also love the one-on-one conversations where seemingly Jesus goes way out of his way to meet the one. Don't you just love those one-on-one encounters with Jesus? The woman at the well, Jesus had to go through Samaria, but on the maps it doesn't look like that. What it looks like is he went to Samaria this particular way so he could meet the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well. Or what about the man in the tree where Jesus is walking in a certain direction with a crowd? There's a man in the tree just getting up there, Zacchaeus, hoping he can see Jesus. And Jesus stops, goes out of his way and says, today, come down out of that tree today. I'm going to your house. And he goes to his house, certainly out of his way. 
or the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus asking questions about eternal life, we don't ever have indication that this young man ever came to place his faith in Christ, and yet Jesus took the time to have an off to the side conversation with him about what the real meaning of eternal life is all about. He was engaging people that were far from him, drawing them near. That's the call that the Good Samaritan points us to. It's also the call that the Great Commandment points us to. And here's how we'd word it. The call is to engage people with the gospel intentionally, not just accidentally or incidentally or, co- or circumstantially. We don't just do it because we happen to come across their path. We do it because we look and we see them And we realize they have a need and we wait to know them and engage them in the conversation. We do this a lot of ways organizationally. And I want you to know it's why we do it. I've had had those that prepare our slides put a group of logos on our screen behind me. Because they represent so many ways we intentionally and organizationally love our neighbors. Let me just say this, all these are extremely important ministries, six stones, where we engage our people with a compassion ministry. Kids Beach Club, going into the public schools where the kids who have never heard about Jesus before have a chance to do that. What an amazing way to engage our neighbors. Family Talk, which equips people to go out and share the gospel. And all through our community, we share the gospel with people that would otherwise not ever really know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love One is something we're doing as a church where everybody's been encouraged to to find one, identify one and pray for them because apart from us reaching out to them, going out of our way to build a relationship with them in order to engage them, they may never know Christ. MCPC, people that find they're with child and yet don't know what they're going to do, what decisions to make, what resources are there. We want to engage them with career solutions. I could go on and on, mission trips, on and on. We do this all over the world. We do this in our community. And all these enable and equip us to engage our neighbor. And all of us need to be involved with all of these. Pick one, get involved. Grab a hole, pick a row, to quote somebody. So many ways you can be connected and involved. But here's the heart of this parable. It's even more personal than what I've just shared. What we must all end up doing is engaging and loving our neighbor personally and intentionally. You don't have to wait for anybody else. You don't have to wait for a semester to begin or end. You don't have to wait for an event. You can do that today. You can do that by the end of the day. You can take steps to a neighbor. You can love a neighbor out of the love of relationship that you have with Christ. There's a couple of verses that really drive me these days because we live in an area where the world has moved to. Wow. We live in an area where the world has moved. Of every nation, of every background, of every language, and for the most part, many of those never have met a loving witness for Jesus in their lives. They've never been engaged with the gospel. Acts 19.10 is the passage where Paul is in Asia Minor. At the time, Asia Minor was a population of 150 to 200,000 people. And the Bible says that over the space of two years, Paul, by his powerful witness and his equipping of others, all of Asia Minor heard the gospel in two years, both Jews and Greek. That's an amazing picture, but it shows something about his powerful drive, his desire for all to know Christ. In every corner of Asia Minor, the gospel was made known because this man knew they needed to hear the gospel. 
And then Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Oh, I, I wish we could all make sure that we have these verses, these principles in our minds, in our words, our mouths. When we speak, it says this. Paul says, conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders, towards those that are not part of the body of Christ. Making the most of the opportunity, as long as you're around them, as long as you're alive on planet Earth, you have an opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you'll know how you should respond to each each other or each person. Make sure, particularly when it comes to outsiders, that you lovingly address them, lovingly show mercy and kindness to them. Love them well. This last week, I knew one of our great examples in our church of loving a neighbor involved uh, the Wright family, Will and Beth Wright. And uh, I think we have our picture up here uh, on the right. Uh, as you look at the, at the picture, their daughter, Wren, and then Mila, uh, in the middle there. Beautiful family. But what's really beautiful about this family is their willingness to engage those around them with the gospel. I want to use their, their example today. Beth wrote me in response to an email that I asked to summarize. And it's a great, it's a great thing. Let me just read it. Will and I have decided to make our mission statement, love God, love people, do big things. John 13, 34, they'll know us by our love. And Luke 10, 27, which we've just read a few moments ago, love your neighbor as yourself, shows us that loving our neighbors and each other points people to Jesus. It doesn't have to be fancy. Instead, we pray that God would put people in our path who need to know the love of Jesus, that he would open our eyes to their needs and that he would help us love them well. Then we have intentionally created margin, it's a key, in our schedules so that we would have time to drop everything and do big things for people. For us, it means listening to people that are hurting, looking for a way to surprise them with love. It may mean leaving a pie on someone's porch or throwing an impromptu graduation party for a neighbor who moved across the country to care for a dad who has cancer. He was a thousand miles away from his friends and classmates. So we got our neighbors together and surprised them with a party. We try to get our girls involved. When Wren was age four, she overhears us talking about someone who is sick or hurting. Her first response now is, I'll draw them a picture so that we can mail it to them to help them to feel better. I ran a half marathon with my Mormon neighbor and now one of my closest friends, mostly so that we could train together. We've had many conversations about Jesus during our long training run. That's the only motivation I can think of for running a half marathon. In 2016, we decided that we wanted to love big by setting a goal to host, to host 200 people in our home in one year. We ended up hosting 258. It was a blast. And there's no better way to show someone Jesus loved than invite them to sit at your table with you. We don't keep counting anymore, but we probably still host 150 to 200 people a year because it's just what we prioritize as a family. It's never fancy. Often we'll just order pizza. Folks don't come to our house for the cooking. Hospitality isn't about oppressing people, impressing them. It's about listening to and honoring people and making them feel like they're part of the family. People let their guards down and they share their hearts around your table. We have a huge heart for the neighbors God has placed on our street. We prioritize spending time with them. Almost none of them know Jesus, although they're all getting to know him one cook out at a time. And we build lots of margin in our schedules again so that we can invite folks over from imp for impromptu pool parties in the driveway with our fancy $14 Walmart plastic pool. What's really cool is that our neighbors have caught on now. They look for opportunities to host each other as well. We had 50 of our neighbors over for Easter this year. Wow. Just a simple cookout in the driveway with a borrowed bounce house in front of the front yard. 
Another neighbor hosted all of us for Mother's Day weekend cookout, and another neighbor is planning a 4th of July cookout on our street, complete with a parade for the kids. We probably hang out with our neighbors two to three times a week. It's never formal, rarely inside. We just set up our lawn chairs in the driveway and wait for folks to come over, and they always do. That's an invite. Loving your neighbor is contagious, and it's something our whole family can do together. It's really fun. I should also add, when loving your neighbor, you have to remember that people aren't projects. They know if they're projects. We simply try to love them and look for opportunities to share Jesus in our everyday conversations. When you're being intentional, you'll be amazed at how many opportunities you have to share. If you look around, this is really a great uh, way to close this testimony. If you look around and all your friends are believers, keep looking. And of course, the intent is, it's great to have friends who are believers. But there are others who desperately need to be engaged with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a great example. I don't know if they're in the room, but I want to applaud their example today. You want to join me? That's great. By the way, they did not write this with the intent of realizing it would be read. But I know a good story when I see one, believe me. And this is a good one. You know, loving your neighbors looks a lot like that. Creating the margin to do that lovingly, engaging them. And what if we did that, all of us, to some degree? We won't all host 258 people in our home next year. We won't all run a half marathon. I know one person that won't run a half marathon. None of my neighbors are interested in that. I know them well enough to know that. But what if we all did that? Here's a map. The map shows... The location of where our church is on the far right center. And the rest of the red dots are just our membership all over the place. You live all over the Dallas-Fort Worth area. You do. Some of you drive great distances. Some of you are just a little bit away. It's a walk away almost. But what if we all loved our neighbors? You see, that's the intent of this great commandment. To love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And to love our neighbors as ourselves. Earlier this year, we began talking about doing this very intentionally, not making people projects again, but help, helping us have a process for how we do that. And they were the five eyes. Identify somebody. Intercede for that person. Invest in their lives. Invite them to your home or to church. Impart the good news to them. And those five eyes spell love. They spell love. What does real love look like? Well, in part, it looks like this. You know, at the end of this parable, Jesus says something profound. Go and do the same. Let me just say this as we wind down this message. I'm sure in the room today there is someone that has never experienced a relationship with Jesus. And I'm sure in this room there is someone that's wondering, what, what is Christianity all about? What's, what's going on behind the scenes with Christianity? Why do people gather in churches like this? Why do they sing and proclaim their love to Christ? And, and, and how does that affect me? And if you're that person today, let me just say this. What does it do to you? What does it make you think about? When you hear that the one we worship, the Lord Jesus, commands us all as followers of Christ to love our neighbors and to engage them no matter what they believe, no matter where they're coming from, no matter what kind of problems they may or may not have, no matter how hopeless they may feel, that we are to engage them in love so that they will know the love of God that we know. What does that do to you? It ought to say this loudly to you. 
that the God of the universe loves you passionately, that he would want every Christ follower to reach out and love you in his name. That ought to move your hearts to want to know the God who tells us to do that, who enables us, who helps us to do that, who says to us, go and do likewise. I want you to stand with me for a moment. This is not the end of our service. I'll pray us to a close in just a few moments, but it is an invitation time. I'm gonna ask people to come to the front that can be here and pray with you and pray for you. Today, I want you to take a moment and ask yourself the question, do I know what that means to love God and to be loved by Him? Do I know what it means to love my neighbor? Today, if I don't know what it means to have a relationship with this God who loves me so much, I want to encourage you to walk forward during our song. We're going to sing a song together. And as we walk, as we sing, I want you to just walk forward and take the hand of someone and say, tell me what this is all about. Help me to get the answers I need to know how to love God with all my heart, to know how to love Him with all my mind. And if you've never experienced that today, let some people that have experienced that tell you about their experience and how you can have it too. I want you to sing with me as we do this right now. And as the song plays, would you respond?